Welcome to the Caris Christian Center podcast. So let's just dive in here. Hebrews 3 verse 1. It says, therefore, holy brethren. Who is he talking to? Who are you? Are you a holy brethren here tonight? I like this. You know, the writer of Hebrews, I, personally, I think it is Paul. Some people agree with me. Some people aren't so sure. Um, the King James translators thought it was Paul. I think, I don't know if they had any evidence for it. They just felt from translating all of the scriptures that this, was, this had to be Paul. I kind of think it, it was Paul as well. Um, slightly different style than some other letters he wrote, but I, I think a lot of the revelation is very similar to Paul's revelation. Or um, whoever was getting this, um, he was getting, hearing from the same Holy Spirit that Paul heard from. So someday when we get to heaven, we can ask, was it Paul? But uh, I like who um, the writer of Hebrews, I'll say the writer of Hebrews, uh, is speaking to. He's speaking to holy brethren. That is us. We are holy brethren. We are part of the family of God. When you are considering Jesus, when you are looking at Jesus, um, you need to think about who he has made you. You are part of the family of God. You are no longer sinners. You are saints. If you have a wrong picture of yourself, a picture that the enemy has put on you, a picture that the world has put on you, a picture that religion has put on you, it will stop you from seeing Jesus for who he really is. So you are no longer a sinner. You should not call yourself a sinner. You are a saint. You aren't thrown out. You aren't corrupt. You are holy. You are part of the family of God. You are no longer orphans. You have been adopted. You are no longer alone. You are part of his family, and he will never leave you nor forsake you. You are holy brethren. And if that isn't powerful enough, he then goes on to call us, the people, the believers who are reading this, partakers of the heavenly calling. Who here is a partaker? Let's partake of the heavenly calling. You have a divine purpose. There is incredible meaning to your life. You are not here by accident. You're not here at Caris Christian Center on a Wednesday night by accident. Heaven has called you. Heaven has chosen you. And this goes right along with something that Paul wrote in Romans 8, verse 30. He said, moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. God wants to shine his glory in you and through you. He wants you to be a bright, shining light for Jesus. You have a destiny. You have a calling. He has justified you. He did not justify you by accident. He did not justify you because he didn't care. He didn't send Jesus to die on the cross for you by accident because he didn't care, because he didn't think he had a purpose, because he didn't have a plan for you. God has a great plan for your life. You are partakers of the heavenly calling. I love what he goes on to say about Jesus. Now, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession. Jesus is the chief apostle. He is the primary sent one. You know, who is the boss of this church? Who is the boss of Caris Christian Center? Who is the chief pastor? Jesus is. He's the chief shepherd. And then, and then Pastor Lawson is under, under Jesus. And I am under Pastor Lawson. And if I try to, you know, perform mutiny on either one of those shepherds over me, it's not going to work out. He's our chief apostle. He's the high priest of our confession. He is the great high priest of our confession. I love that. Of our confession. Jesus, Jesus is a, a faith. He is a confession of faith. Jesus didn't confess doubt. He didn't confess sickness. He did not confess unbelief. He did not confess defeat. He's the high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who is faithful. I love that's one of the first words that he uses, an adjective to, to describe Jesus, that he was faithful. He was faithful. And he goes on to say, he was faithful kind of like Moses, but he's actually better than Moses. He knew these people that he was writing to, these, these Jewish believers, these Hebrew Christians, that they would, they would know a lot about Moses. And he's saying, you know, 
Moses was very faithful. He was faithful in all of his house. But there is something different. There is something better about Jesus. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than any man who has walked on the face of the earth. He was better than Adam. He was better than Abraham. He was better than Moses. He was better than David. He was better than John the Baptist. He was better than Paul the Apostle. He was better than Pastor Lawson. Pastor Lawson is a faithful person, but Jesus is even more faithful. Moses was also faithful in all his house. Verse 3, for this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. I love that. The creator is better than creation. The creator is better than creation. The creator knows more about creation than creation does. There is a creator. And Jesus is the one who built the house. He built all creation. He's the one who built the house of faith. He's the one who built the temple of God. He was the one who built the nation of Israel. He is the chief builder. He said Moses was a servant in that house. He was a servant in the the house of faith. He was a servant in the, the nation of Israel. But Jesus, something was different about him because he was the builder of that house. Verse five, Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant. Moses was a faithful servant for a testimony of those things which should be spoken afterward. But Christ, as a son, there was something different about him. He was a son over his own house. He wasn't just a servant in that house. He was a son over that house. He built that house himself with his father, whose house we are. We, we, he can build us. We are part of that house of faith. We are part of that body of Christ. If we hold fast to the confidence, I love this. Faith is a very confident thing. Those songs we sing tonight, they are pretty confident songs. We should sing songs that have some confidence in them. We should sing songs of faith, not songs of doubt and unbelief. I guarantee you that Jesus did not sing. You give and take away. I guarantee that Jesus did not sing, I'm so confused. I thought I heard you loud and clear. There are several songs that pop up on Christian radio that I don't think Jesus would want to sing himself. And if Jesus wouldn't want to sing those songs, I don't want to sing them either. Because he is the high priest of my confession. So if Jesus wouldn't confess it, I'm not going to confess it. That's a good word for someone tonight the high priest of our confession. Hold fast the confidence and the, say this, rejoicing. Rejoicing of the hope, firm to the end. That is awesome. Remain confident, keep rejoicing. Now the next um, few verses here, the writer of Hebrews quotes Psalm 95. This is a super powerful psalm. I'd like to read it all tonight, but I'm not going to. I'm going to try to save some time, but if you're going to go study out some of the things I've said, study out some of what I've taught, read all of Psalm 95. The first six verses are incredibly powerful. They just sing of the greatness of God, sing that he is the creator. He is the king of all kings. He, it, it is powerful. It just glorifies God. It is incredible. Um, just, just worship. And then um, the writer of Hebrews quotes the second half of the psalm, starting in Psalm 95, verse 7. We'll start here in Hebrews 3, verse 7. It says, as the Holy Spirit says, the Holy Spirit was speaking through the psalmist. The Holy Spirit is still speaking to this writer of Hebrews. The Holy Spirit is still speaking today. Now, if if you're like me and you like to mark up your Bible, you can take a pen and circle that word today. The writer of Hebrews, that one word, today, really spoke to this author of Hebrews. The Holy Spirit was still what well, was speaking to him through that one word. One word from the Bible can just light you up. It can speak to you and just bring incredible power and revelation. That word today. Today, when this, when this, when this writer was thinking about Psalm 90. 
5. He loved verse 7 because he loved that first word there, today. And he, and he keeps alluding to that word, today. Today, several times. So whenever you see that word, today, you can circle it, put a big star by it. Because faith is for today. The promises are for today. Today, if you will hear his voice, his voice is still speaking today. The writer of Hebrews was not a cessationalist. Someone that believed that the power of the Spirit had ceased or would cease. He said you can always, today is always the day of salvation. Today is always the day of God's promises. Every promise from Genesis to Revelation, it's available for us today. Today, if you will hear his voice and not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works 40 years. They saw God's power. They saw his work. They saw the manna. They saw the pheasants. God just dumped so many pheasants on them. He said, I'm going to give you so much meat that it's going to be running out of your nose. I calculated how much pheasants God dumped on them. It was a meter high, two cubits high, and it extended a day's journey in any direction from the camp. So, so three feet of pheasants, 20 miles in any direction. You can see why God got upset with them. That they just complained and complained and complained. And he just kept dumping out his power, his glory, his goodness. But they just kept rebelling. And the author kind of talks about here, and we'll get into it in a moment, but what that primary rebellion was and still is today. They saw my works for 40 years. Verse 10, therefore I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Verse 8 kind of talks about this progression, what happened to them in the day of rebellion. They hardened their hearts. Our heart is very important. You need to guard your heart. It's up to you. Notice that God didn't harden their hearts. God, it was up to them. It's up to us today to, 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 to tend to your heart. You need to guard your heart. It's up to you not to harden it, but to soften it. Amen? But they kept hardening, hardening their heart. God kept trying to soften it, kept trying to pour out his goodness to them, but they kept choosing to rebel, kept choosing to, to, to complain, to, to not believe. They kept choosing these things. I love that we sing tonight, you're too good to not believe. So I swore around, they shall not enter my rest. With Jesus, always keep a sense of discovery. Don't let his goodness grow old in your life. Man, some things God just dumps out his goodness day after day after day after day. Remember that those good things that are in your life are from him. And don't let it grow old. Don't become unthankful. Don't complain. Thank him for those good things. Rejoice for those good things. Amen? Now, verse 12, um, I, I have another point for the second half of this chapter, Hebrews chapter 3. And this is my main point from Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 through 19. It is this. Faith causes you to move. Faith causes you to move. Verse 12, beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. So this evil heart of unbelief, what does unbelief do? How does unbelief move you? How did unbelief move the children of Israel in the wilderness? Did it move them to the promised land? It actually moved them away from it. It moved them away from God. Unbelief will cause you to move away from God. Hardness of heart will cause you to move away from God. Faith, on the other hand, will cause you to move closer to God. Unbelief will cause you to move closer to death. Faith will cause you to move closer to life. I like that he calls this type of unbelieving heart an evil heart. That's, that's, not, a, that's not a light term. 
an evil heart. Why is a heart of unbelief evil? Because that is one of the greatest sins, the sin of unbelief. The sin of unbelief is the only sin that will stop God from doing what he wants to do in your life. The sin of not believing on Jesus, that is the only sin that will keep you from going to heaven. That evil heart of unbelief, it will cause you to depart from the living God. Verse 13, but exhort one another daily. Why, while it is called today, you can circle today. When is a good day to exhort somebody? That word exhort means to encourage, to build up, to inspire, to, to remind someone about the goodness of God. My dad told me when I first started preaching seven years ago, I've been here seven years now. He said, whenever someone comes to church and hears you preach on a Wednesday night, you should be encouraging, Aaron. And I know that's one of his main goals is to exhort people, to build them up, to encourage them. Exhort one another daily. It's always a good day. It's also a good day for you to go and exhort someone else. There are people who need what you have. There are people who need built up. There are people that need the spirit of God that is on the inside of you. Exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And I, I have underlined the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is very deceitful. There is an incredible amount of deceit in the world today. Sin will deceive you. It will distort people's ability from seeing the truth. Sin will cause you to twist your own ability to distinguish between good and evil. Sin, sin screws up people's perception of good and evil, even to, to the point where they reach where evil will appear good and good will appear evil. That is what is happening today in the last days, where evil is being called good and good is being called evil. Sin is very deceitful. Verse 14, for we have become partakers of Christ. Man, that's awesome. We are partakers of the heavenly calling. We are partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said, said today, if you will hear his voice, he's saying, hear the voice of Jesus today. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who having heard rebelled? Now he's asking a question Let's look back to the Exodus. Let's look back to the children of Israel leaving Egypt. Who rebelled? He's, he's asking this question. Who rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? It was pretty much all. There are only two people I know by name who, who weren't called rebellious. And I think it's important to look at, at the, those two people and look at why they are not rebellious. And there's an important conversation that happens with, with Joshua and Caleb, the two people who, who, were under, who were over the age of 20 who got to go into the promised land. People who were, were, were young got to still enter and they weren't part of that rebellious generation. Numbers 14, you can turn there if you'd like. Keep a, keep a thumb or a finger there in Hebrews 3, but go to Numbers 14, and we'll start in verse 6. This is right after the, the various spies gave their report of the land, the, the, the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. Joshua and Caleb gave, gave a very positive report, and then the other 10 spies gave a very negative report. You need to be careful about how much negative news you listen to. I've actually just deleted Facebook and Instagram off my phone. I can look at it on my computer every now and then just to stay in the loop, but I don't need to be checking it 10 times a day, 12 times. You know, they engineer it so you're just addicted to this stuff, so you just keep clicking and stay on it. So for me, I just deleted the, the apps off my phone, and my life is much better. The condition of my heart is much better. So I'm just not seeing as much negativity from, from, any, from anyone. There, there are many people who just proclaim negativity. 
Numbers 14, verse 6. It said, Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. So when they heard all the people just weeping and wailing, responding to the bad news, just saying, let's go back to Egypt. They were so tore up. They tore up their clothes. And they spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, the land we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, they were just looking to the Lord. They were looking to his promise. If the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel again. They saw that this was a rebellion going on. People were, were trying to, to mutiny Moses, but mutiny the Lord himself. Do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. They're saying, we're going to go in there and, and eat these people like a piece of cake. They are our bread. There, there are some challenges in life that, that are actually, when you conquer them, they are going to nourish you and help you go on and grow and Go on and eat a bigger meal. They are our bread. Their protection has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And look at this reaction. Sometimes when you, when you are a bold person of faith, when you have that confession of faith, sometimes it's not always popular. Verse 10, all the congregation said to stone them with stones, but the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of the meeting before all the children of Israel. And a few verses later in verse 24, it says that Caleb, there was something different about him, something different about Joshua as well. They had a different spirit in them. He has a different spirit in him, and he has followed me fully. I will bring him into the land where he went, and his descendants shall inherit it. There was a spirit of faith in Caleb. He was ready to move closer to God, move closer to that promised land. He didn't want to move away from it. He didn't want to move away from God. He didn't want to move away from, from his relationship with God, from that delight that God had. He wanted to move closer and closer. Faith causes you to move. Caleb wanted to move toward God. Let's go back here to Hebrews 3. Verse 17, it says, Now with whom was he angry 40 years. Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? Man, just constant unbelief, it will lead to death. It will lead, lead you away from God. It will lead you away from his promises. You are always 100% of the time better off believing God than not believing God. You are always 100% of the time better off believing the promises of God than not believing the promises of God. Verse 18, and to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? This is a major promise in scripture. This is a major promise that God has for people of faith, to enter his rest. It says those that did not obey, they would not enter his rest. Verse 19, so we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Faith causes you to move. I want to ask kind of a theological question to everyone here tonight. This is a good question for everyone, even Pastor Lawson. I'm going to get his wheels turning. Does faith move God? I hear some yeses, some noes, some people are just thinking, remaining silent like sheep that were led to the slaughter. No. Does your faith move God? It pleases God, yes. Faith can move mountains. Faith can move a sycamore, cause it to be plucked up and to be cast into the tree. It can move someone from their family in Ur of the Chaldees to the land of Canaan. Faith should hopefully move your mouth. They should hopefully move, move your hands and your feet. Now, these people 
who were caught up in rebellion with the sin of unbelief. They could not move because of unbelief. Unbelief will cause you not to move. Faith will cause you to move closer to what God has promised, what God has already done. Does your faith move God? Someone asked me this question. Someone actually emailed the church. And I'm going to read you this email, and I'll, I'll um, read you my response to this email. This is actually a good question. I haven't heard this like preached on just point blank like I'm preaching on it tonight. So I'm going to read you this email, read you the response. I'll keep it anonymous, but I think it's okay that I read it. Heather's like, I'm not so sure you should do that. But I reminded her several years ago, I read a, a news article that um, someone had written a question to um, Billy Graham. And he um, typed up that question and typed up his response and published it in a major newspaper. And the question was something like this, like, Dear Reverend Graham, you know, the, the, the music pastor at my church doesn't do enough hymns. Should I go confront him about this? And he gave his response. He said, no, you should repent for, for, for having just such a critical spirit against this worship pastor. You should actually um, go, go thank that person for their service to the body of Christ. He was very, very, I mean, he, he's pretty direct. and actually gave his reasoning for it. So be careful about your um, complaints. He, he was very direct. He said, you need, to, you need to repent and ask God to change your heart on this matter. And um, he gave a really good theological response why there should be new worship in the church today. Why it's good to, you know, it's good to sing old songs, it's good to sing old hymns, it's good to rearrange them at times, but it's also good to sing new things. And even hymns at one point were old songs, or, or those old songs were at one point new songs. And he gave, you know, scriptural references for, for let us sing a new song unto the Lord. So new songs can be from God. So here's the question. It starts off with, um, from where this person is coming from. So it says this, I know that I've heard that God cannot sovereignly control things on the earth because he limited himself by his own word. I do agree with that. However, there are instances in the Bible where God did things apart from someone else's faith. So I'm trying to understand how God was able to do some of the things he did in these instances, although there are many more examples than these. So I'll read you all the examples of him seeing God move apart from someone's faith in Scripture. He said, such as in Genesis, God rebuked the serpent and made him crawl on his belly. In Genesis, he made women have more pain during childbirth. He spoke through a donkey, Numbers 22, 28. He destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. In 1 Kings 19, he sent a wind, earthquake, and fire. Genesis 11, God confused the people's languages. Um, he made the ravens feed Elijah. He flooded the earth. He smote the firstborn children in Israel. I think he meant in Egypt. Um, he smote and put sickness on people. So all of his examples are very Old Testament, very, a lot of smiting examples of God doing things apart from people's faith, except for the donkey. I'm glad he mentioned the donkey speaking, because that was a non-smiting example. But here's his, here's his last thing after... Now, I can see his focus is very Old Testament. Sometimes it's good to see where people are coming from, what their focus is. So subconsciously, he's very focused on a lot of smiting. In his pictures, God is very smiting. So here's, here's the question. If God cannot do anything on the earth apart from someone's faith, how were these things able to happen? So this kind of ties into my question is, does faith move God? Does your faith move God? So his question is actually slightly problematic. I'll explain why. So he, his, his exact question is, if God cannot do anything on the earth apart from someone's faith, how are these things able to happen? So I just replied, thank you for your email. To answer your question, if God cannot do anything on the earth apart from someone else's faith, how are these things able to happen? My response, I would actually disagree with your question. God can do things apart from someone's faith. There are many people who aren't in faith, yet God helps them anyways. We see this throughout scripture. Gideon would be a great example of this. I like the example of Gideon. 
This is in Judges. There's a lot of smiting going on in Judges, but we see God's tremendous grace, even in Judges. In Judges 6, an angel of the Lord appears to Gideon and tells him that God will help him deliver Israel from the Midianites. Gideon does not have a response of faith. He actually questions God's existence and God's heart for Israel. God continues to show grace to Gideon, even though his faith is pitiful. God ends up helping Gideon until he eventually does reach a level of faith where he can step out and do what God has called him to do. God's word never changes. So God does not do things that are separate from his word, from his promises, from his nature, from his character, from who he really is. The Father was fully revealed through Jesus. I actually um, brought up this question to someone else on staff, and and she brought up a great example of of Jesus doing something where there wasn't any evidence of faith. When he uh, appeared, uh, when he, he just happened to be walking um, you know, outside this town, and there was a funeral procession going on. This woman had a son that had passed away, and he just raised that person up from the dead. There wasn't any, any um, you know, thing recorded about, about a demonstration of faith. He just did it out of his grace and out of his, out of his goodness, just raised that young man from the dead. So she had a great um, New Testament example of, of God doing something really apart from um, faith, or at least faith being mentioned. The Father was fully revealed through Jesus. Faith is incredibly important because this is our response to who God is. It's our response to his word, his promise. Faith works by love and is a reflection of our relationship with God. Our faith is important, but it does not change God. Even if people are unfaithful, that doesn't change God. God stays the same. Romans 3, verses 3 and 4 says, For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written that you, speaking of God, you may be justified in your words and you may overcome when you are judged. God is going to always overcome. I give this example to to this person. I like giving just a very hands-on example. I said, I have a nine-year-old son, and I value my relationship with him. If I tell him I will get him a nice gift that he has been asking for, he usually has faith in my promise. Recently, I told him I would get him an electric scooter, and he went around telling his friends about it before he even got it. I'll give you a little bit of the backstory. He actually had a friend in the neighborhood who's a little bit snooty. And he had an electric scooter, and he wouldn't ever let Fisher play with it. And he kind of bragged that this is mine, and you can't ride on it. No, 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 no. So what did I do? I got him a better scooter, a faster scooter. And he started bragging about it. You know, he had faith in my response, and faith speaks. Faith rejoices. Faith boasts. So I said, he had faith in my promise, and that blessed my heart. If for some reason he didn't believe me, didn't trust me, didn't expect me to follow through, I would still get it for him. Because that is my will to do so. God has a will. Your faith does not control God's will. God's individual will does not change He can do things apart from people's faith or lack thereof. Faith is incredibly important because it is directly connected to our relationship with God, and he is after our hearts. So yes, God can make donkeys talk, even though no one had faith for it or even asked him to do it. Best regards, Pastor Aaron. Your faith does not move God. Your faith does not cause God to to bring about a new promise, to to, to bring about. God has already moved. God has already revealed his heart. God has already done his part. Faith moves you. God is incredibly, incredibly, incredibly gracious. You know, and there there are so many examples of this. I was just thinking about, you know, did did the, the, the faith of the people in Nineveh Move God to send Jonah to go to Nineveh. No. They were, they were heathen. They were corrupt. They were, 
they might not have even heard of the one true God. But God sent a preacher there, a preacher who didn't even want to go there, a preacher that he had to have a fish swallow him up and spin him up on the beach of Nineveh to get him there. But they pre he preached the word, he preached the promise, he preached the gospel, he preached the truth. And, and, and there was revival. They repented. They came to God. And, and, and Jonah, being such a great evangelist, actually was mad about it. <laughs> and, and told God, like, I'm, you know, just kill me right now, God. This is terrible that people are turning to you and, and heard the, the message that I preached. And he's, he's quite the donkey. God can use a donkey and that he can do whatever he wants to do. Does your faith move God? No, it moves you closer to what he's already done. It moves you closer to him, who he is, who he really is. It, it draws you closer to him. When did God love you when you were in faith? God so loved the world. The world has been, he's always moving towards us. Our faith moves us towards him. Amen? So my, my theological response to does your faith move God is no. It does not move. God has already moved. He's already provided everything that you need. He has already provided every promise. Faith causes you to receive from God what he's already done. It allows you to step in and allows you to go closer to the, to the promised land, but it does not move God. God. God is not the one that we need to, to ask to come down from heaven and to move. He's already on the move. So Pastor Lawson can preach after me if he disagrees. But I, I, I see that God, God moves many times apart from people's faith. You know, this person said, they, they kind of were on this, this train of thought that they literally said that if God cannot move apart from people's faith, if, if, if there wasn't a single person in faith, if there wasn't a single faith-filled, believing person on the face of the earth, that would not change who God is. God would still love the world. God would still, still want to say, God, God's heart does not change. His promises, does that make sense? God isn't the one who needs to move. And God, God is not, you know, that, that type of question, if God cannot move apart from people's faith, God is not a genie in a bottle that you can just summon up with your faith and have him do whatever you, you. God has a will. God has his promise. God has, he is who he is. You are not going to change who God is. Does that make sense? The, the, I was actually a little bothered as I was thinking about that question that like, God cannot move apart from people's faith. God, God can do whatever he wants. Amen. Let's go on here into chapter 4. Now, this, uh, this kind of helps explain what I was talking about. The word, the promises, they always have to be mixed with faith. Hebrews 4, verse 1. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, he says there's still a promise of entering his rest. There's a promise to the children of Israel as they were leaving Egypt to enter the promised land. There is a promise of entering his rest. That's still available to us today. Let us fear lest any of us should seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. The gospel has been preached. He's saying the gospel, the good news. God's heart of redemption was preached to them. The gospel was not just preached. Beginning, you know, with Jesus. The gospel has been preached since Adam and Eve. God preached the, the gospel in the garden, God preached the gospel to Adam and Eve. God preached the gospel to Noah. The gospel was preached to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Ephraim, Manasseh. It was preached to Moses. It was preached to Joshua and Caleb. It was preached to all of the Israelites as they were going through the wilderness. It was preached to Rahab, to Ruth, to David, to Saul as he was on the road to Damascus. 
But the gospel, the word of God, always has to be mixed with faith. It was preached to them as well as to us, but the word which they heard did not profit them. Not being mixed with faith. Faith is absolutely essential. Because when you hear the word of God, when you hear the promises, when you hear about Jesus, you have to mix it with faith. If it is not mixed with faith, if you don't believe it, it's not going to work. When I was 17, the summer after my junior year, I went on a trip with the Youth Symphony here in town to Spain. I was really excited about this trip. Uh, it was my first time going on a big trip um, like that. Um, and um, you know, that, that year, I'd actually won a, a big competition that the Youth Symphony had, so I was the big soloist wherever we played in Spain. And um, that was kind of my first time for an extended period of time away from home. And one place we stayed at in Spain, um, we, we stayed in, in apartments, and we had to cook for ourselves. I never cooked anything in my life. 17 years old. And my, my roommate, he was a, a, a very smart, I think he, he became a, a, an engineer. He's a very smart um, young man, about my same age. We had this apartment together, and we were, we, neither one of us had cooked, and we went to the, the little grocery store in that town in Spain. We, we brought back um, some spaghetti noodles, and we put the noodles in the pot, and we turned on the heat, and nothing was happening. And me, this, you know, AP, you know, Straight A high school student, this other straight A AP, soon to be engineer at a top college. We couldn't figure out why could we not make spaghetti work? We had the noodles, we put it in the pan, we turned on the heat, but nothing was happening. We, we went to the, some of the girls next door, knocked on the door, they came in, and they said, You gotta mix it with something. You're, mi you're missing a, a key ingredient. You need to have some boiling water. I'm not even joking. My wife is like, seriously. I don't know why this surprises her. Because when I, when I married her at you know, 30, 32, she's like, how do you not know how to do laundry? I've been doing the laundry the same. You know, my mom, I remember before I graduated high school, she wanted to teach me how to do laundry. I said, mom, don't worry about it. When I go to college, I'll figure it out. And for, for you know, 14 years, I just threw it all in, put it on cold, just dumped it all in there. Whatever. That's how I wore my clothes for 14 years. And my wife Heather told me, you've been doing it wrong for 14 years. You've got to mix, separate the colors, you know, hot and cold, these, these kinds of things. Please don't wash my clothes. You don't know what you're doing. <laughs> I, I dare to say that, that many in the body of Christ are trying to cook spaghetti without a key ingredient today. You've got to mix the word with faith. So, so a lot of the body of Christ is actually missing two of those important ingredients. Maybe they're missing out on the word. They aren't even preaching the full word of God. They aren't even preaching the promises. They aren't even fully preaching who Jesus is. They aren't even fully preaching the truth. You got to preach the word. You got to preach the good news. You got to preach Jesus. And you have to mix it with faith. Some people are just trying to cook spaghetti with an empty pot. <laughs> And wondering why, why they aren't getting anything. Verse 3, for we who have believed do enter that rest. As he has said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although the works were finished. The works were finished. God had already moved. He had already made a place of rest. When did he make a place for rest? When was that promise available? He's saying they were actually available since God created the heavens and the earth. It made me think of this key verse in Revelation 13, verse 8. The lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. The works were finished from the foundation of the world. Verse 4. For he has spoken in a certain place on the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day day from all his works. And again in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Verse 6, since therefore it remains. What remains? That promise. The promise of divine rest still remains today. Every promise of God from Genesis to Revelation is still available today. It remains to this day that some must enter in and those to whom it was first preached and did not enter in because of disobedience. Again, he designates a certain day. 
a certain day. Saying in David, which day is this? Today. Say, today. today. After such a long time, as it has been said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden. His promises are for today. The works have already been finished. God is not going to be moved by your faith. He has already moved. He has already made the promises available. Jesus said something very important on the cross. He said, it is finished. For who, for he who has entered his rest himself has also ceased from his works. This reminds me of something else of Paul. What Paul said in Romans 4, verse 4. He has ceased from his works. Romans 4, verse 4. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. If you think you can still move God, if you think you still have to do something to get God to... He's saying you're trying to cook spaghetti without water. The wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. The, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Verse 11, let us therefore be diligent or labor to enter that rest. That's a great, profound oxymoron, but we can labor to enter his rest lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. I don't want to be an example of disobedience. You can learn from other people's poor examples. I want to be an example of obedience. Amen? My last point, I'm going to finish it up very quickly. Verse 12, the word of God is alive and powerful. Every single promise is alive, powerful, available today. For the word of God is living. Say, the word of God is living. And it's powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You know, I've seen some people today who, who still even try to hold on to the word of God, might even try to quote it. I've seen politicians who aren't even believers try to quote the word of God and use it for their own selfish gain. If you try to twist, warp, distort, manipulate people with the word of God, it's not going to work out. It's going to cut you. Verse 13, there is, and verse 13 kind of explains why, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Every single individual on the face of the earth will have to give account to God himself. So whoever tries to, to distort, twist, abuse the word of God, the people of God, you will have to give account. Everyone will have to stand before for God. He's the ultimate judge. Verse 13. There's no, no one hidden. Verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. I love thinking about Jesus. You know, something that we're trying to do with our, our young son who's nine years old is teach him how, how to think about other people, how to have empathy, how to sympathize with other people. If you really want to understand someone else, really want to care about someone else, you're going to have to put yourself in their shoes. God wanted to do that for us. He cared about us so much. He wanted to be able to sympathize with us. He wanted to be able to put himself in our shoes. So he became flesh and blood. He lived on this earth as a man. He was born as a baby. He learned how to walk. He learned how to talk. He learned to, he had to get rid of his pacifier. Our two and a half year old just got rid of her pacifier yesterday. Praise God. It's a miracle. The Holy Spirit showed Heather what to do. Holy Spirit showed her to take the passy and cut off the tip of it and to stick it in her mouth and show that there's something wrong with the passy. She stuck it in her mouth. She could tell something was wrong. And Heather told Ada one of her favorite words, which is yucky. And Ada said, yucky, yucky. 
she knows yucky. She likes to suck on lemons and say yucky. She, I think she just likes to suck on it because she likes to say yucky. So she said yucky. And then Heather said, throw it in the trash. Make it go gone. And then she threw it in the trash and they said gone. And he said gone and went, ah. Like she missed it. But when she brings up the passy, we say yucky. And she says gone, gone. And we say yes, it's gone. You're growing up and maturing. Some believers need to, to let go of their passies and mature. Too many believers are just happy with, with just their, their formula. It's not even the real kind of milk they've been drinking. I'm talking about these seeker-sensitive you know, half gospel, half life, half whatever. Lukewarm. Spew it out of the mouth. Yucky! <laughs> Last day church will either be a Laodicean church or a Philadelphian church. A lukewarm church, a yucky church that Jesus will spew out of his mouth and make it go gone. <laughs> or a church that's full of the power of God, full of the life of God, full of preaching the true gospel. A heart for, for, for missions, a heart for, for sending people out to preach the gospel. Jesus had to learn how to talk, had to learn how to listen to his mama, had to go to school, had to work to earn a living. He had to study scripture. He had to go to church. Man, if Jesus went to church, should you go to church? Yes. You don't think you have to go to church, then... Just whatever. You're very immature. <laughs> Jesus himself went to synagogue, as was his custom. He went to the synagogue in Nazareth, and he read from Isaiah. This is good preaching tonight. <laughs> Y'all thought Pastor Lawson was the only fired up one. <laughs> he had to pray. Jesus had to choose disciples. He had to be portrayed, be be betrayed. He had to be arrested. He had to be humiliated. He had to die for us. That way he could take the keys of death. That way he could strip Satan of every vestige of power. That way he could give his church, his body, those he is the high priest over, his authority, that we could experience his resurrection, that we could come straight into the throne room of God. Verse 16, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. God's grace is always there. Man, God is always wanting to move with his grace in your life. Even when you've screwed up, even when you're screwing up right now, that does not change God's heart for you. God is wanting to pour out his grace in a mighty way for you tonight. Your screw-ups, your unfaithfulness, that does not change God's heart. But faith is important because it causes you to, to move closer to God. It causes you to move closer to the Father. So we can come boldly into the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In conclusion, faith is for today. The promises are for today. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Caris Christian Center podcast. If you would like to receive prayer, product, or more information about the ministry, go to www.karischristiancenter.com or call us at 719-418-4000.